John 12, 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages, should have been sold, and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. Since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. Word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is a question Jesus asked Martha at the tomb of her brother. Um, it's a question that because of the way John's gospel is written, that, that John intends to ask us. As you've seen this one perform miracles through these previous uh, 11 chapters, um, six, of, six of these signs actually, this being the seventh, um, do you believe that this is the resurrection and the life, the Son of God, the Messiah? And knowing that, that after seeing what he's done, we see life. We see that those who believe in him find life, and this life is active in us. Mary's response mirrors the end of John's gospel, which we've talked about, which is that this was written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Mary already is answering the question of, did you read this and did you find the answer? And, and John, um, uh, it's not a modern news story, or at least it's more obvious than a modern news story. He tells you what he wants you to take away from it. Um, do you believe? Is this the point that you are coming to? And this um, Sunday is, is, is holding that together. Now, traditionally, we practice the liturgical calendar. So Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. Um, and then we begin this journey with Jesus from this moment of ministry where he's been acting in miracles and in glory and all these things, um, or, or doing these signs in John's gospel, to walking towards the cross with him. 
in the three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the moment of the transfiguration which Jesus goes up on the mountain is eclipsed in glory and seen ablaze with three of his disciples and Moses and Elijah come and discuss with him there. Um, those make this um, moment right around where Peter confesses that this one too is the Messiah. So you have confessions in both these scenes, these hinges, this confession in John's of Mary's, this confession in the other three gospels of Peter's. John uh, notably does not have the transfiguration. And so the year that we walk through John's gospel, um, we acknowledge the transfiguration on Transfiguration Sunday, um, but we try to focus on what John might have for us. Now this confession in, in John's gospel is right here at the end of book 12, which is commonly called the book of signs. Um, we had the prologue chapter one, uh, that described the word, and then the first miracle at the start of two, the wedding at Cana, begins these signs, seven of which, which make up the first part of John's gospel, the seventh being this one, the raising of Lazarus. So these make up after this moment, as you noticed in what Kim read, six days before the Passover at the start of chapter 12, is this moment in which the rest of the gospel, 13 through 20, one, but the rest of the gospel is consumed with the last week of Jesus's life. Over half of the gospel takes place in Jerusalem as he is about to die. And notably, uh, I don't think really any miracles minus the resurrection. And for the most part, he's speaking directly to his disciples. There's one moment at the end of chapter 12, but after that, his public ministry has sort of come to a close and we're invited as his disciples to sort of hear his final, um, I was going to say advice, but that makes it sound like not great. Um, most of us don't like getting advice. Um, his final sort of commencement for us, his final sort of charge, and, and the ways in which we shall go forth um, as he goes to his moment of glory and passion. Now, one of the reasons why I think John doesn't have the transfiguration is because he wants to say that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is the glory upon which we should focus. That, that the second half of the book, which takes place as he is moving towards his death, um, is often called by the scholars and such the book of glory. And we're going to see his glory throughout the second half of the book. And so this is sort of how the Gospel of John holds together with this. And at this last scene of the book of signs, we find this sort of... Um, raising of Lazarus. Now, we didn't read the whole thing today. It's not the last I am saying either. The last I am sayings um, uh, continue. I am the, the true vine. Um, there are a couple of those in those last ones. There are seven I am sayings that also, actually, I think I have a slide for those. There are seven I am sayings that make up the gospel of John. I'm the bread of life. I'm the good shepherd we've heard. I'm the gate and the door we've heard. I am the light of the world. And the last one from the first half of the gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. Oh no, the water too we did. Um, true vine and the way, the truth, and the life come from that second half. So we have two I am statements left. But what I wanted to do today is hold together sort of these two halves that come to us at this moment. The first half is this sort of final sign, this resurrection, and then the second is this anointing that Mary does. Now, what's interesting about the anointing is the transfiguration is in all three Gospels, the baptism is in all four, the cross and resurrection are in all four, 
Um, one of the things that's in all four that gets under attention is this anointing. Um, Mark has the anointing. Luke has the anointing earlier in the ministry. It might not be the same one. Um, Matthew has an anointing. They all have Jesus as he's approaching um, Jerusalem, except for Luke who has it earlier, has this moment at which expensive perfume is broken over him. And in some sense, these are marking for him. We often skip that. I'm not exactly sure why. Um, But I want to hold together that anointing, this meal that they have after that resurrection, along with this uh, final sign. And it's the sign that he is this resurrection and the light, that he is the one whom whom can go through um, raising the dead, that he, he stands as one over death. And so chapter 11 begins with Lazarus being sick. And Jesus gets the word, the Lord, the one you love, is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the glory of God that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Which is kind of the opposite of what you would expect. When he hears that he is sick, he stays where he is two more days. And what's been happening is that the tension around Jesus being in Jerusalem, it's clear that this is his last chance to go there. The result of the Lazarus story is them becoming convinced that they need to kill Jesus, but it's been floating so much in John's gospel that it's clear that this is the last time. Let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you go back. Jesus proclaims that he, as he was proclaimed earlier, the light, that through this light they can go and do that. This is reiterating that Christ is the one who lays down his life only to pick it up again. It is not just um, that against him, that this is his mission. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. The lovely literalists of the disciples, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Um, At the time, it was common to use sleeps for death, um, but they're not catching on that that's his youth what his use here. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but they thought he meant natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I was glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Jesus proclaims that death has come. Lazarus is dead. And when they arrive, well, we'll talk about that when we get there, but there's this death that, that sort of comes, and this is what brings Jesus to that point. Then Thomas says, let us go that we may die with him. This is them realizing that if they go to Jerusalem, it will be the death of Jesus, and Thomas in his idealism thinks that they can go with him to the cross. This is picking up where Ray read now. Um, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Now, this is classical in in Jewish theology at the time, was that the soul of the departed remained around the body for three days. So if they came back to life in that time where they didn't have all the medical interventions we have today, it would have been more classified as a recitation, uh, a resuscitation, resuscitation. Um, um, and, And it would be somebody coming back to life But what he does with Jesus, he or Lazarus, he makes it a resurrection. Hence the two days he stayed behind. Now they go to Bethany, 
Lord, when Jesus comes, Martha said to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know even now that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Here, um, Martha is answering the question in the way that a good Jew would answer at the time. There was this general belief that there would be a, a full resurrection of all of faithful Israel at the end of the age. What I think perhaps makes Jesus a stumbling block to the Jew throughout the, the rest of the New Testament is that he proclaims to have inaugurated that age in his soul resurrection while we await the fullness of all that rising. And so what happens in Jesus is one faithful Jew is raised from the dead in anticipation of the inclusion of the Gentiles and then the raising of everyone else. But Martha at least answers it correctly. I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus then proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life. One who believes in me will live even though he die, and whoever lives by believing in me, he will never die. This is sort of the center of this phrase, and I've been talking about is each of these stories, particularly the I am statements, but so much of John's gospel, is his statements then shown to us in story form or preceding that. So Jesus feeds all the people with all this bread, and then he says, I am the bread of life saying that this bread is in some sense a miracle to you, but it's a sign, as signs point to things. Um, signs point to realities that, that don't yet exist yet often or, or are participatory. Um, as a sign, Jesus is making these things uh, clear through things that are already among us. And so the Lazarus story is a condensing of what is it, a condensed parable or story or or way of saying, this one is the resurrection and the life. Because as we know, Lazarus dies later. Jesus shows his power over death in this scene to proclaim that he is the resurrection and the life. So often we, like the early um, followers of Jesus in these stories, love the signs Jesus, be this sign for us. Feed us all the time. Give us this water. And what Jesus is trying to point out is that there's a deeper reality in which he is doing these things. In him is the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live even though they die. But as we approach our death, we are ones who live in him. Earlier he said, Lazarus sleeps. And I think of Christ as one whom death is sleep to. It's about being awakened, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus in John's gospel proclaims this overlapping of the ages in that such that eternal life, the type of life that has the quality of eternity, doesn't await that resurrection but begins now. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die that the type of life that we might have that stretches on beyond the grave to that fullness of day, to that resurrection, is one that inhabits space and time as you believe into him now. This is different than the other Gospels. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
There's teachings like that. But here in John's gospel, it's this realized way in which this is available to the believer now. Martha answers, Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Echoing the ends of John's gospel. She calls Mary out to her. Um, And when they meet, uh, when Mary reaches the place uh, where he is, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was moved deeply in spirit, uh, deeply in spirit and troubled. This is a a Greek phrase that expresses frustration, but also Jesus' compassion. Um, It's hard to know what to make of it. but it's important because what comes next, wherever you lead him, come and see, Lord. Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the New Testament. Is everybody required to memorize a verse? At some point in their church life, remembers, just go for the easy one, um, Jesus wept. And yet the profoundness in that phrase um, often eludes us. Um, this is from on the back of the bulletin. Death is costly, and that cost is not to be discounted blithely on the way to a message of heavenly bliss. Yet, even in the face of death, Jesus brings life. Jesus' raising of Lazarus is a metaphor for the kind of life he offers all believers. This is not a life that is otherworldly, but one that abides in the grief and loss of the world. Yet it is a life that also overcomes death, against which the power of the grave does not have the final word. What I like that she points out, and and Gail O'Day points out, is that Jesus weeping, we can come up with all the reasons we want for it that's not answered in the text. Um, Often you'll hear disbelief, this, that, and the other. But whatever it is, it's the reality that this age has not yet fully grasped what it means that he is the resurrection and the life. And I don't think that's just anger on Jesus' part. There's often like, oh, he sees the disbelief of the people. I think it's more that this is the world's ugly face rearing its head again and what it brings is death destruction what it brings is weeping and even the son of god incarnate is not immune from seeing that weeping amongst us as death has come and interrupted this life jesus weeps at the graves a grave as his friends weep at the grave there's this teaching in the book of Romans that we are to weep with those who are weeping and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. It would be weird if Jesus didn't do that. Um, he's our model in weeping together with those who weep. And then they end with this accusation. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind, of the, the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Little do they know. Jesus, once again, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a uh, cave with a stone laid in front of it. Um, And Jesus says, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for there he has been, for he's been in there for four days. The King James says, um, for it reeketh, I believe. Um, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone that Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his feet and hands wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. 
Jesus said to them, take the grave clothes off and let him go. Jesus, in this final sign, confronts that decay of the world, the stench of death. And through his voice, he calls out life. Going back to last Sunday that he said, my sheep hear my voice and they come. So too it is with the dead in Christ that as we hear his voice in that day, we too shall rise and leave the tomb. Love about this passage is that finalists take the grave clothes off and let him go. So much it is for us as people who I think as the church can often answer, do you believe that he is the resurrection, the life? Yes, we will believe. But can we keep our grave clothes on? Can we keep ourselves bound in this reality? Just for us to hear from Christ. It's time for us to take off the clothing of death. To see that the stench of decay does not reign to him, but the voice of the conversation with the Father. Remove yourself being bound in your death clothes and come forward for your shepherd calls you. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall not die, but shall live. Whoever lives in me shall not die. This is this this enacted way of seeing Jesus as the resurrection and the life um, in the last sign in John's gospel. This is what starts the plot to definitively kill Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We've heard that since the beginning of the gospel, that the light of this one will shine in darkness, and darkness will try to stamp it out. And so, too, I think it's hard for us to believe, but it is with us often, too. Death clothes and all, or whatever you want to think. It's hard to have this type of abundance and life and truth reside within you before you turn against it. Um, To become children of the light is certainly the goal of John's gospel, and he picks that theme up in his epistles later. But it's not like it's expected to be the easiest thing ever, and to not see ourselves in the people who often see Fear in this one who comes near to us with the power over the grave is to misread the story. We have to be honest and confront that. Um, If you're just like, I'd be one of the people who goes all the way to the end, I think you're (laughs) misreading. There's a a thinker who says there's people who watch Schindler's List and think that they're Oscar Schindler, um, which is not the point of watching Schindler's List. The tales of extraordinary human beings are there to acknowledge that we often are not them. The next thing is the anointing at Bethany, um, six days before the Passover. This is Jesus' last Passover, as I said. One of the places where we get the idea that Jesus had three years of public ministry is the three Passovers recorded in the Gospel of John. Jesus goes to three different Passovers, hence he had three years of public ministry. This starts the final week of his life and the final half of the gospel, this Passover. Um, It's the scene recorded in all of them. Um, But what we see in this is the beauty of devotion and the way that Mary comes and anoints him. 
She takes her hair down too, which is inappropriate at the time. She comes and anoints him with this beautiful fragrance and this waste and excess. And it's over the top in so many ways. And she washes his feet with his hair, wipes her away with her hair. And this fragrance fills the whole house. To be one of devotion in this way. To be one who anoints in this way. There are all sorts of things that we can sort of lay into this. There's royal anointings. There's different anointings. Jesus proclaims this one as anointing for his burial in his conversation with Judas. What I think we find in this passage is this good contrast between Judas and Mary as well. We find one who sees Jesus drawn to his life, drawn to who he is, and breaks a thing of extravagant worth to dump out on him. You see Judas on the side, business, this is over the top, this is this. Now, this is, um, I thought this was quite amazing when I found it. Has, it. has anybody ever seen this book? Having a merry heart in a Martha world, finding intimacy with God and the busyness of life. That's often coming from a scene in a different gospel where Mary wants, uh, Martha wants to serve Jesus, as she is doing here, um, and Mary just wants to sit at his feet. And the, the idea is, I, I feel bad this book um, uh, is, is trying to proclaim that these are two sort of polar options that the modern Christian woman exists with. But I was thinking, for this passage, we have having a merry heart in a Judas world. Um, uh, that this is the way in which we have to look at it today. What does it mean to have a merry heart in a Judas world? To have an anointing heart in a world that wants to add everything up, make everything equal, make everything work out. Judas is this figure who stands here, and he's often a challenging figure in all the Gospels. Sometimes it's said that Satan and darkness enters him, and that's why he does what he does. Other times it's alluded to greed. I think there's one Gospel in which it can be alluded to his uh, zealotry. I think that's Luke, where he thinks that if he can instigate this rebellion, Christ will do what he's supposed to do, free all the Jews from Israel. There's various ways of reading Judas, um, and it's very challenging because Christ has 12 close disciples. He's God, and he has one who is there to betray him. St. Augustine, uh, I think, correctly sees that the church should take heart from this, that we should um, love those amongst us who aren't there yet, um, because even Christ kept a betrayer amongst him during his ministry. The church's purity movement is always bound to fail because Jesus kept Judas as his disciple throughout his ministry as well. But what does it mean to have a merry heart in a Judas world in some ways? Um, Judas says that he wants all this to go to the poor. Uh, I don't, has anybody been following the revival in Kentucky? It's been in the news variously because um, it's my job and sphere. I've, I've heard more about it. And to be clear, I grew up Presbyterian, so all of it looks like way too much emotion for me. Um, uh, it's very hard for me, uh, but I, I rejoice in what's happening there. It's, it's good to see young people worshiping, people worshiping with God. I don't love the, the tourist aspect of it, everybody feeling like they need to go, but it seems like something's happening there. But what I notice and people share with me is um, this idea of people saying, if it doesn't do anything for the poor, that revival doesn't count. 
If it doesn't care for whatever oppressed group I think of the most, the revival doesn't count. Having a Judas heart in a merry world. Somehow worshiping, I think it's been going on for over seven days now, can't be seen as enough. We, like Judas, feel the same way. It's great that they're doing that, but if it doesn't lead to the preferred outcome that I want, then it's all for naught. Wish people would, would think about that more. Because here, Jesus shows us that it's worthy to, to sort of have devotion of another sort. Recently, I've been reading um, the, the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and one of the things that he often is trying to point out is that our desire to care for people um, who we think are oppressed or this, that, and the other often comes from resentment or from hatred or from other things. It doesn't always come out of the compassion we think it does. Judas is a thief. Judas is a liar. But we often think, what about the poor and we don't know any? What about this person? That's another Russian, um, the Brothers Karamazov. Uh, early in the book, one of the women comes to the elder father, who's very wide, Father Zosima, and she's a mother, and she says, look, I could love the whole world, but I can't stand the people next to me. For us to think like Judas to accept that sort of rationale is I oftentimes can fall prey to caring so much about all these abstract issues and causes, thinking that everything else is wasteful that's not bound up in them, and yet failing to see that I can't walk across the street to help my neighbor shovel his driveway. I don't know if people have seen the phrase, eat the wrench. I saw it in a, a, a bathroom in Carbondale, which I was like, well, how much further do you want to go up the podium before you actually do this? Because, you know, it's not like the rich are that far away, 30 minutes from Aspen. Um, that we have this deep desire for resentment, for everything to go our way. Um, Christianity, um, I think, this goes back to the gulag a little bit, that has this notion that if you want justice in the world... Die to self. So often, the Judas-style prophets, myself included, when we cry for justice, we want someone else to die. Who pays for the kingdom of God to come to earth? Not me, but someone else. Christianity has this uh, view of full justice that comes into the world and is important and valuable, but it includes you where you are as well. This money should have been given to the poor. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but he was a thief. This too is contrasting Jesus' early teaching that, the, that thieves come in some other way. That was the thieves in the the good shepherd, um, and they come to steal, to rob, and destroy. I think so often, as we look at, at the times in, when our own hearts are drawn to the Judas nature, or when we see it outside of us, it's like there's a good thing, and somebody just instantly thinks of what's not there so that I can rob people's joy in it. 
What can I destroy or take from that? This may be good, but have we thought about this? It's, and it's the opposite of what Mary does. We'll go move to Mary, how to, how to have, be like Mary now. But Mary fills the whole house with this fragrance. Judas basically burps in the middle of it. Um, he interrupts the goodness, but Mary is seeing her brother risen, a meal together, a Sabbath together, and they celebrate in that. Her fragrance fills the house. What does it mean to, to have uh, worship be like that? What does it mean to have a, a proper sense of what we sit at the feet of someone? That as we look at Christ who has come amongst us, we're one who is willing to sit there and be with him, to be attentive in that ways. I think to have humility. Um, oftentimes I think the church, I've, I've tried to, to work on this myself, fails to ex- practice appropriate extravagance. Just this much joy is allowed. No more. Um, uh, when we used to help people with food at my last church, it was like, here's, here's you know, a box of standardized food, but it's like, we, shouldn't we throw steak in there every now and then? Um, or something that's like, we see you and that there might be something worth having a nice meal for change. My brother, um, who used to work with the homeless in San Francisco quite a lot, he does something else differently now, he used to love to get Ruth Chris, which is a nice steakhouse gift cards, and take them along with him there. To have a, tart, a heart attuned to extravagance, humility, to be able to read the times. Um, and I think one other thing, to have attention. Um, this is Simone Vey. Absolutely unfixed attention is prayer. been reading through Matthew Crawford's book, The World Beyond Your Head, but one of the things he talks about at the beginning of the book is that we live in a world in which we can't choose what we're attentive to, and if we can't choose what we're attentive to, then what does it mean to be human? So often we, we ask, we're living in this weird time with all these things, this, that, and the other. What Crawford brings it all back to is, can we choose to be attentive to things? Everywhere is noise. Everywhere is grabbing for it. Um, advertisers, this, like, whatever it is, your phone, there's so much so that it's hard to actually think. And if you think about brain science, I was talking to Jack this week about young people with cell phones. He was like, they, their attentiveness is so hard to grasp. We think, well, you can just turn it off and we're in charge. But I think that life doesn't work that way. Brain science suggests it doesn't work that way. What does it mean to be attentive to this thing? to be able to be there and adore the one. In all the other stories, or at least two of them, Jesus says of this moment that it will be told of her throughout the world. At this time, to say, a person with a good name enters your house means that it will go, the fragrance of their name will go from one end of the house to the other. John's way of saying that, that this story will be told, this memory of her will be kept, is saying that this fragrance, this anointing, fills the whole house, and then metaphorically ways, then that way it fills the world. So we have the contrast between the Judas and the Mary heart. And what happens at the end of the story, 
that we read today is that the, the, the chief priest planned to kill Lazarus as well because the sign of the new life is that big of a threat as well. What's going to become clear as Jesus teaches through the rest of the gospel is to go forth as one who believes in him, to go forth as one who knows that he is the resurrection and the life, is to oftentimes not be welcomed in the world. Lazarus comes forth from the tomb. Other people are believing because of him. There will be this tendency to stamp it out, and it's for Christians who listen to Jesus in these final chapters to not be naive about that. Challenges will come, and they should come, from the joy and life of resurrection. When I was in college, there were Christians who would say, so persecuted, but it's like, but you're also so mean. <laughs> you ask for it. Um, you seek it out. Um, Lazarus comes forth as one of a testimony of that the death clothes have been removed and that life resides here. And that's what Christ came as a testimony of too, and he's pushed to the cross as well. So too, we should not be naive as well. But this is a sign of the new age of the resurrection and the life. That Christ has called forth Lazarus from the tomb and receives his anointing as he prepares for these final weeks, or final week in his life, final weeks as we walk in John's gospel to the Good Friday into the Easter story. Let us pray. God, we come as people who hear you say, I am the resurrection and the life. Care and tend to our hearts and lives that we might be people who can respond with Mary. Yes, I believe. You are the Holy One sent from God. And may in this believing, may we see the way in which you remove the stench of death the way in which you call forth people from their tombs and remove their death clothes so that they might live. May we be like those who are free to anoint, free to sit at your feet, free to hear from you, free to live in wasteful extravagance in light of your new age and kingdom and life. Praise God, the Father, who hears you as you speak outside of Lazarus' tomb. We ask that your spirit come inhabit our hearts and animate us as well. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.